Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. So anyway, you're welcome. Um, We are thrilled that you are here. The way our service typically works is that we spend some time refreshing our imaginations through song. We spend some time refreshing our imaginations through the scriptures. And then we kind of open up the service to questions. We're a community that believes that um, religious authorities should be, you should be able to question them. <laughs> and, um, and we're big fans of curiosity and wonder and doubt and, hey, how's this work out in real life? And so we have a text line uh, you can text questions into, and also um, we'll take some questions in the room. And then Kevin, our senior pastor, does a uh, Q&A discussion uh, down in the, what's it called? The lounge, yes, down in the the lounge, down on the left uh, when you go down the hall. So anyway, all of that is uh, just by way of introduction. Also, um, if the answer to the following questions is all the same. Hey, I'm new here. How do I meet people? Hey, I'm new here. How do I serve? Hey, I'm new here. How do I, like, what programs do you have? Hey, I'm new here. What's your vision for five years from now? All of the answers to that question involve a table. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, we literally rearranged this whole room to meet around tables because... Um, We think the invitation that we have to the Lord's table is central to what it is to follow Jesus, and and we extend that grace and hospitality to each other through a practice we call the table, creatively enough. And that is where our community opens up its homes to each other and, um, and we share a meal and share conversation and practice hospitality with people that we don't always know or people with whom we not, might not always agree. And uh, the next one's coming up February 5th. And so if you go to Journey TN, you can sign up there. Sound good? Great. Overwhelming today, guys, the energy... It's fantastic. It's all right. It's all right. I got broad shoulders. I'll carry this sucker. Now, what we're going to do today, um, we are going to take another step forward into the book of Mark. And the way we're going to do that, when people approach the Gospels, we often read them as individual, cute little Sunday school stories. Oh, here's Jesus healing a poor leper. Oh, here's Jesus healing a blind man. Oh, here's Jesus walking on water without any thought that they might be arranged to make certain theological points. And so we're going to look at a bunch of stories today, but we're going to look at them very quickly because we don't want to talk about the stories. We want to talk about the point they're making. So we've got a lot of text to get through, but that text is, all of that text is designed to get us to understand how Mark and why Mark is arranging the stories in the order he does. So that you might, whenever you read the gospels, not just assume they're just these isolated incidents, but they're actually very carefully woven together. Now, if you're new to the gospel of Mark, it's one of the four biographies of Jesus. Later church historians tell us that Mark is really a record of Peter's preaching and experiences. And Mark really breaks down into three different acts, three different sections. Go ahead, Sarah. And they're based on geography. 
So the first section takes place in Galilee. The second section takes place on the way to Jerusalem. And then the third act uh, takes place in Jerusalem. And these acts are titled um, and have, you know, various themes. So the, the Galilee part, portion that we're going to begin looking at today is trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? Fair question. Mark tells us who he thinks Jesus is in his first sentence when he says this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the only sentence Mark kind of uses to tell us his thought. Then we hear about the baptism of Jesus where heaven is ripped open and a voice says this is God's Son. Um, and so, But the rest of the narrative is, is, is everyone trying to figure out who this exactly is. Then in chapter 8, the whole book pivots where Jesus asks his followers, well, who do you say that I am? And they say, the Messiah. But they totally misunderstand what kind of Messiah he was to be. And so there's a whole travel section where the disciples really struggle with figuring out what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then in Act 3, we, we live into the surprising paradox of how Jesus is enthroned as king over a kingdom. All right? Now, if you're looking for maps, I got maps. Your Bible might have them, but here's one that's very small. The top region is the Galilee, all right? That, le that little lake up there at the very top is the Sea of Galilee. The long blue line is the Jordan River. The, the big blue at the bottom is the Dead Sea, all right? So the whole narrative takes place from north to south. He's up top in Galilee, uh, he's moving down towards Jerusalem in the second part, and the third part, he's down in Jerusalem in Judea, all right? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at two and a half chapters today, but we're going to do that uh, focusing on the characters that Mark introduces us to, and we're going to be very fast through this, so this will take about 20 minutes to, to talk about the various characters we're being introduced to and how they're relating to Jesus, all right? So the first group... We want to meet our uh, disciples of Jesus, uh, very famously. Yes, yes, I wrote one slide, disciples. That's the first group. All right, so if we're in Mark chapter 1, verse 16, Jesus has just begin, began proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. We talked about that last week. The kingdom of God is not God accepting God into your heart. It is about God taking up his throne, and this was the expectation of the Old Testament. How does the kingdom come? Well, Jesus calls a community to embody his reign and rule as king. So after Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, which was up north in our map, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Now, being a fisherman was an, an entire identity up in that region. It wasn't just a part-time job. It wasn't a side hustle. Like, you were probably a generate, you like generationally your family were fishermen. And so the idea that you would just drop that and walk away, that's, that's more significant than what it sounds like. It's not just drop your nets and, and leave for a while. It's literally repudiate that, that whole vocation and identity in order to, taking up, to take up this following of Jesus. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father. So this was the family business. 
in the boat with the hired men and they followed Jesus. Now, just as a side note to add some confusion, the whole fishers of men idea has been um, used, I mean, I've taught this this way forever. Fishers of men is the idea that, hey, we're preaching the kingdom and hoping to fish for people so that they come in to the kingdom. It's kind of an evangelistic sort of invitation. But the, the fishers of men idea comes from a passage in Jeremiah, which is really weird. Uh, so I just want to point it out very quickly. If we would, Sarah, fire up the Jeremiah. But now... And this is God talking about the human agents he will use to judge the nations. But now I will send for many fishermen, and they will catch them, the wicked. After that, I will send for many hunters. They will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and from the crevices of the rocks. My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes." So there is a strand of scholarship that argues the idea of the disciples being fishers of men is actually the disciples were empowered to bring judgment upon Israel for her refusal to accept Jesus as Messiah. And there are other instances throughout the book of Mark where, you know, we turn this whole endeavor into evangelism, but the preaching of the kingdom was both challenge and comfort. It was invitation, absolutely, particularly to the marginalized, but it was challenge to those who had led Israel down the wrong path. So it was just interesting that the disciples aren't just out there evangelizing, but in their preaching, they're also challenging the current power structures and direction of Israel, and that's why they face opposition in the gospel too. Now, so that's one group of people, the disciples. They turn into the apostles in chapter 3, Verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed how many? Twelve. Now, does twelve have significance in the Bible? What's twelve? Come on, Old Testament folks. Yeah, twelve tribes, correct? So, so there are people who will say, oh yeah, Jesus chose 12 men to be disciples. And that means the only leaders of the church can be men. But that's not the significance of 12. The 12 here is the idea that Jesus is embodying the vocation of Israel. And the 12 represent the earliest microcosm of Israel's proper response. So Jesus is renewing Israel around himself. That's kind of the picture we get. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, his brother John. (laughs) To them he gave the name, whatever that is, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the what? And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, just a brief word. Matthew, we know, was a tax collector. Simon the Zealot was Simon the... And zealots and tax collectors didn't like each other much. So take, take the person that loves Donald Trump the most, take the person that hates Donald Trump the most, and invite them to follow Jesus. And that's what that is like. That's why we, the table fellowship, we do, not, we do not want a church that thinks exactly the same way on all these things. That's not the church. 
The renewed humanity is when people from all sorts of backgrounds are willing to set aside those secondary differences for the sake of unity in Jesus. So it starts right from the very beginning. Now, the disciples so far in this section are presented very well, right? They're responsive, they're dropping nets, they receive authority. This is gonna change next week. But for now, we meet disciples and they're like, hey, they're in. Fantastic, that's the first group. Second group, um, what is the second group? Oh yes, the religious leaders. Oh, the religious leaders. Chapter two, verse one. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, that was up in the top of the map, the people heard that he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get the paralyzed man to Jesus, I love this, they made an opening in the, the roof of the house next to Jesus by digging through it, and then they lowered the man, uh, the mat that the man was lying on. And I know this is, again, cute Sunday school story, but we think this is Peter's house, and, and you can imagine... The debris that starts filtering down, the bits of sunlight that start to come through, I don't know exactly what Peter was thinking, but from other places, he doesn't seem like the most self-controlled person. So I'm not sure what was happening, but Jesus, I would imagine, is, is, is smiling or laughing as just in the middle of whatever they're doing, here's this dude. And the dude doesn't do anything, correct? The dude is paralyzed on a mat. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. But notice, when Jesus saw their what? He saw their faith. We think of faith as something that you have inside of you. But faith is something in the Bible that you can see. It's like love. Love isn't just a feeling. Love is action. Faith is action. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, sons, your sins are forgiven. Did the paralyzed man ask for this? No. What was the paralyzed man wanting? Yeah, to walk. So great, his sins are forgiven. But there were mechanisms in Judaism for the forgiveness of sin. So it's kind of like, okay, great, thank you. Stoked for forgiveness. Anything else? Now, here's, here we meet some religious leaders. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but who? God alone. So the fact this Nazarene peasant was floating around Galilee, not a priest, not offering sacrifice, not at the temple, just saying, hey, oh, you look interesting. Your sins are forgiven. That's an indirect appeal to being Yahweh, right? Only God could do this. Immediately, Jesus in his spirit knew what they were thinking. He said, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven? Actually, the answer, it's easier to say, get up and walk, because only God can forgive sins. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Everyone was amazed. But this is the introduction we get to the religious leaders. 
They're seeing and perceiving that Jesus is subtly claiming to be more than just a carpenter. If you flip over, uh, we're then introduced to like three or four religious leader stories. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners, they asked, why does this man eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 18, now Jesus, or now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but you're not? Verse 23, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? What, what is the image we're getting of the religious leadership's attitude towards Jesus? What is that? What is it? Testing, perfect. Yes, they're questioning, they're critical, they're watching him carefully to see if he screws up. Legalistic, absolutely. They're appealing to a tradition that Jesus himself does not hold. You bet. Chapter three, what's that? Oh, we'll get to that. Absolutely jealousy. Hey, jealousy. Mark chapter three, verse one. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Now, a shriveled hand. Not, it doesn't sound like much to us, but you would most likely not be able to, to do labor with a shriveled hand. And there was also an Old Testament tradition that shriveled hands represented you reaching for something that wasn't yours. This happened to one of the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. God shriveled his hand when the king reached for something that wasn't his. So there's a backdrop to this. There's also a backdrop that on the Sabbath, you could heal somebody if their life was in danger, but if it wasn't in danger, just wait till the next day. So is a shriveled hand mean the man's life is in danger? No. So Jesus the Pharisees would look at this and say, great, Jesus, heal him the next day. Some of the Pharisees were there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched closely if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in what? Ooh, so there's a sermon. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then notice verse six. Then the Pharisees, who were a religious sect, went out and began to plot with the Herodians, a political sect, about how they might kill Jesus. Like, we're in chapter three. So, Initially, the opposition to Jesus starts out as observing, questioning, testing, criticizing, jealousy. But then it quickly turns into, he must not be allowed. Oh, you do not have to shush that little one. Those are beautiful noises, okay? In fact, they're the only noises I'm hearing from this <laughs> nine o'clock crowd right now. So please, any sign of life is welcome. Whew. One more picture of the religious leadership. <laughs> 
chapter 3, verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by the prince of demons, and that's how he's driving out demons. And this is where Jesus responds by talking about the blasphemy, the unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And we get into all of that. That might be something we want to talk about in the Q&A part. But the point is, there is this consistent and growing opposition to Jesus from the religious leadership, correct? So you have the disciples who so far are awesome. They've dropped everything. They've been empowered. Hallelujah. Then you have the religious leaders who are distrustful and skeptical, but, but growing in their opposition to Jesus. Then, thirdly, you have Jesus's family. And we get this picture of Mary, right? Mary treasuring these things in her heart at Christmas time and all those sorts of things. But then when we meet the family of Jesus in the gospels, they're not so sure about this guy. I love this. It's just absolutely insane. I know, I know, I know, I know. Verse uh, 20 Mark 3, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. That Greek word literally means arrest. It's the word that's used when Jesus is arrested. So they literally meant to yank him out of there because they said Jesus is out of his mind. Now, has your family ever thought you were crazy? You're in great company. I mean, that's abs, but isn't that interesting? Even his family is offended at what he's doing, and they try to shut down his ministry. In fact, if you flip the page alone, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived to, 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 because they thought he was out of his mind. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. The crowd was sitting around him and he said, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Now notice, his disciples are inside, but his family is outside. Right, that symbolism is important. And Jesus says this strange thing, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if you're Mary and you hear that answer, how's that sitting with you? Right? So even lineage to Jesus doesn't mean you're on the inside group. Agreed. All right, now, are you guys okay? All right, sweet. There's one other group we need to look at. The disciples are in, but they're not super clear. Religious leaders are opposed. His family thinks he's crazy. But then we meet this whole class of unclean spirits. And they happen to have some inside information about who Jesus turns out to be. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 21. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them not as one, or he taught them as one who has authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, "What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are." And then, what's he say? The Holy One of God. Now, this is in a section where everyone's still kind of confused about who Jesus is. 
In fact, if you go over several verses to verse 33 of the same chapter, the whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because why? They knew who he was. That's interesting. Or if we flip over to chapter 3, verse 11. Whenever the impure spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, What? You are the Son of God. So Mark tells us he's the Son of God. God tells us he's the Son of God. And then the unclean spirits tell us he's the Son of God. And then in chapter 5, uh, we'll hit this passage later. But we meet the, a guy called the demoniac, which is never a title you want to historically be known by. <laughs> when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, <clears throat> it's interesting that of all the groups, and, and again, we could have looked at this linearly, and it would have totally made sense, but I wanted to look at it because Mark is introducing us to major characters and how they relate to Jesus is the point of this section. The section number one is who is Jesus? So the answer from the disciples is, well, I don't know, but we know enough to drop everything and follow him and be empowered by him. From his family, they think he's crazy. The religious leaders are opposed to him and actually accuse him of being demon possessed and that's why he can cast out demons successfully. But then we get this weird undercurrent of unclean spirits who are all shouting, you are the son of God, you are the son of God, and he has to shut them up. So four themes I want to draw from this section. You guys all right? Perf. So my kids would say, perf. Go ahead and throw them up there. And we're going we're gonna to marinate in these for the next 10 minutes, Samuel. First of all, how is Jesus presented in the early chapters of Mark? Jesus is presented as an agent of liberation. He's coming not to bind people up, but the picture we get is that Israel has been subjected and oppressed by the powers of darkness, the powers of politics, and poor religious leadership. And so Jesus comes as an agent of liberation authoritatively teaching, rebuking the powers of darkness, and confronting the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. For many of us, we do not experience Jesus as an agent of liberation. When I was, when I was born and raised, and as I see my children um, grow up, for some reason, the liberating Jesus gets transformed into the Jesus who, whose only goal is to make you sin less, right? And for many of us, that's how we experience Christ. Christ is just another big expectation in the sky. And the picture we get here isn't of that at all. There is this joyful non-compliance because the people are tearing off the roofs of houses to get near him. I mean, how many times do we read the house was so crowded they couldn't even eat? They were experiencing Jesus as an agent of liberation. And I just want to say, if that's not how we experience Jesus, then it might not be the Jesus, it might not be Jesus that we're experiencing. There is a difference, and you all know this, between Christianity and Christ. And there's a difference between the church and Jesus. At our best, we reflect the Jesus we worship. 
But at our worst, what do we do? We obscure him and make him seem ugly. And so one of the themes of this section is that Jesus comes to liberate, not to add further burden. And so we can sit and look at the kind of Jesus we're following. Now that liberation isn't into whatever I want to do. The idea is one of the things that oppress us is my unwavering commitment to meet whatever I think I need. And so Jesus comes to liberate us, but he liberates us into his kingdom. So first theme. Second theme. What do all these stories have in common, the first couple of chapters of Mark? They're all conflict stories. So when Jesus says the kingdom is coming, does that mean Jesus is coming very subtly at this point? No. Jesus is coming and like all the kingdoms of the world are like vomiting up opposition the minute they see him. They see him as a threat. So not only does he come liberating, but because he's liberating from the status quo, those invested in the status quo are threatened by it. And that generates a massive amounts of conflict around Jesus. Now, it's not, the conflict isn't generated because Jesus is a jerk. So when people claim persecution because they're just being jerks to other people, it's not what we're talking about when we're talking about persecution. The idea is that when Jesus' kingdom comes, other kingdoms are displaced. There will never be a vacuum in this world for power, right? So Jesus comes liberating, but he comes bearing a kingdom that is a threat to the political, religious, economic, and spiritual kingdoms of the world. So it's not surprising that there's conflict. If you were told that following Jesus just means a nice rose-covered path throughout the rest of your life with riches and health waiting at the end, it's not the life you've signed up for. And it's not the life at all he embodies or promises. Thirdly, one of the fascinating things is that Jesus of Nazareth, so it was thought, because it was taught in the Torah, that if something clean comes into something, comes into contact with something unclean, what happens to the clean thing? It becomes unclean. It gets polluted. The idea was impurity, ritual impurity in the Old Testament was contagious. So you have to stay away from dead bodies and certain kind of animals. You have to stay away from certainly bodily functions. I mean, not that you could, but you have to wash after them. So the picture is that uncleanness always defeats cleanness until Jesus shows up. And what we're going to see Jesus do is he's going to, like, we know he can heal from a distance. He just says a word and sometimes people are healed, but he's touching everybody. He's going to touch a bleeding woman. He touches a leper. He touches a dead person. He's very hands-on. And the reason he's doing that is to show that when the kingdom of God comes, purity trumps impurity. That there's no one so unclean that they can't be renewed by this Jesus. And this was a massive, massive scandal. That Jesus is reversing all of the thoughts around purity and impurity in exactly the opposite direction. Are you with me so far? Fascinated. I can feel it. Here's the last point, and then let's do some questions if you have any. I find it fascinating that demons have the best theology in the Gospels. Don't they? 
you're the Holy One of God, you're the Son of God. Everyone else totally confused. But from the very beginning, I mean, literally after Jesus starts proclaiming the kingdom, the unclean spirits are like, we know who you are. And American Christianity is built on having great theology. And I just wonder, if theology is what God is looking for, then the demons believe, correct? I mean, James even says this. He's talking to his church, and he's like, you believe that there's one God good, but even demons believe that, and at least they shudder when they believe it. My experience of American Christianity, some parts of it, was it, it was like a, um, a pass-fail test when you arrive at the pearly gates. If you knew the answer was Jesus, you're in. It didn't matter. It's like, it's, have you ever been to the, D, yes, you have, the DMV, the Demonic Motor Vehicle Association? <laughs> That's where you can do spiritual warfare if you're into that kind of thing. No, the DMV, at least after you're 16, doesn't test you on how you actually drive. They test you on the theory of driving, correct? And so that's the same picture we have of God in heaven when he judges us. It doesn't matter how you actually lived. As long as you had the theory of living correct, you're good. And that is not the way faith in Christ is portrayed in Mark or anywhere else for that matter. We hear the word believe and we think that's something we do in our brains and our hearts. We hear the word faith, we think that's just trusting in something invisible that may or may not be wrong. If you want to know what faith looks like in the book of Mark, let's just read a couple passages. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired men and followed him. Without delay. That's what faith looks like. A man with leprosy came to him, begged him on his what? fell to his knees. That's what faith looks like. Next. When Jesus saw their faith of the men that dug the hole in the roof and lowered the guy down, when he saw their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. Next. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he what? Fell at his feet. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell where? At his feet. And told the whole truth. Next. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I love that. Your faith has healed you. What was the faith? Was that faith? Did she have perfect Sunday school attendance? Was she baptized? No. She just knew there was something about Jesus. And she was willing to be socially humiliated just to touch the hem of his robe. In fact, as soon as this woman, a different woman heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and what? Yeah. In all of these instances, faith is something you see. And I know I'm over making this point, but let's continue with dumb, like real life examples. Does my marriage consist of pointing to the marriage license we got 22 years ago and saying, I not only believe I'm married, I know the theology of marriage, and, and I can tell you all sorts of information about my wife. But I don't speak to her, 
I mock her publicly. I shame her. Is that what marriage is? Of course not. So somehow we've interpreted forms of Christianity to be like, well, I prayed a prayer when I was eight at camp, and now I get to live however I want. That's not the picture of faith we get in Mark. The picture of faith we get in Mark is something you see, just the way love is something you see. So these themes are woven throughout the Gospel of Mark. But the one that stands out and is so challenging to me, because as an American Christian, and, 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 and good theology doesn't save us, but bad theology certainly harms us. So theology matters. But we spend so much time arguing about who's right those aren't the kinds of things Jesus is super interested in. So, questions, if there are any. Hello. Hello. Cam, are you, you're shouting, you're waving your hands. He's coming. Kevin's, Kevin's on the move. Kevin's on the move. He's still moving. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes, thank you. Yeah, great, great question. <laughs> so you said that Jesus is basically overturning these different kingdoms, and the last one that we talked about was the demonic kingdom. Yes. What does that say about our world then, and what does it say about it now if the demonic kingdom was existing? Right. Man, that's a great question, Cam. Let's just do a light one to start. <laughs> All right, let's talk demons. So, so, huh? Demons in a bar, that's our next one. Oh, well, they're there evidently, so we don't have to. No, that's, that's funny. They call them spirits at a bar. Yeah, spirits at a bar. That's, oh, oh. Not that I've ever been to a bar. The dad jokes are thick this morning. I love it. All right, so when we, we talk about demons, um, people do one of two things, right? They either so focus on that it becomes literally the entire expression of their Christian faith, and there are demons behind every sound problem and every sickness, and it's just ridiculous. It's, like, it's not like we live in a fallen world. It's just that the demons are everywhere, and they're very interested in whether or not I lose weight in 2023, right? Because I'm feeling that opposition. Demons somehow are there to inhibit our personal goals, right? So, so that's one extreme. And because of that extreme, most of the rest of us don't even touch the subject. Because we are modern 21st century people, we understand medicine, right? We have um, diagnostic capabilities for people that, that probably they, back then they would have said they're demon-possessed. But if one of the ways we are Christian is to see the world the way that Jesus does, Jesus saw that there was a, a, an opposite force on the playing field. We don't get a lot of details. We meet unclean spirits in the gospels and then in the epistles we meet powers and principalities. Powers and principalities, those are like structural evils. The unclean spirits seem more like, in, like targeting individuals or families and I have no idea how these two groups relate at all. No clue. But the way Paul talks about spiritual warfare is that it 
It happens in the church, and it happens non-spectacularly. So when Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, church, you will give the enemy a foothold. How many of us consider spiritual warfare forgiving people and being reconciled to one another? None of us would do that, right? And yet that's exactly the place where Paul says that the powers of darkness can enter in. So these dazzling exorcisms we see in the life of Jesus, I see that same commission given to the apostles, but I don't see that same commission given to the church in the exact same way. The church is to wage warfare primarily by the way that they live in opposition to the powers. So the powers sit behind racism. The powers sit behind sexism. The powers sit behind self-righteousness. And so when the church becomes a community that embodies justice and humility and kindness and reconciliation, that's actually spiritual warfare according to the Bible. So it's much less about there's an angel here and a demon here, and it's much more about all the things we'd rather like not deal with so we could focus on having the right answers. How we treat people, the irritations, the jealousies, the conflict, all of those are the places where spiritual warfare is engaged in. So Cam, I think that's a great question. I think there are instances where unclean spirits are at work and I think the church has authority in Christ to pray against those things. But I've been around people that talk to demons and glean information and I just, I don't, I'm very skeptical of those sorts of things. Only because the New Testament doesn't seem to encourage it for the church. Great question. We got one over here, Mike. Yes. So I have two middle school boys here. Yes, middle school boys, let's go. Yes. Look at me. While they might try to follow, they do not always follow. Well, join the club. So if you think about what's coming next week and you had to middle school boys paraphrase what you would want them to know coming out of this sermon going into next week, what would be your like main thing that you want them to take away? Oh, what a wonderful question. You don't believe this yet, middle schoolers. But Jesus has come to set you free and renew you, not bind you up in a bunch of rules. That's the thing. That's absolutely the thing. And, and, and they won't believe it because they'll receive religion like we all do at first, which is I'm seeing the whole thing as sin management, to use Dallas Willard's phrase. But after I've sinned enough and realized, oh, that isn't always the greatest way to live. See, w- with our kids, we're playing the long game, right? We're, we're working for a relationship with them 30 years from now. So if they see experience Jesus as another authority figure, just like their teachers or police officers or whatever else that is there to enforce rules, then they'll wander away from that five, 10 years from now. But if they experience Jesus as someone who's actually for them in the deepest possible ways, even now, maybe, they'll embrace a faith that is truly theirs and genuine. That's a wonderful, thank you. That is one of the best questions ever. Hey Mike, I got one question off the text line that I think uh, you kind of left it hanging there in the middle of your sermon. It's low hanging fruit. Um, 
The question about Jesus teaching or when he's in that circle and the family shows up and they're going to arrest him um, and yet has feels like he has disregard for the feelings of his immediate family, his mother, his brothers, his sisters. Yeah. Um, does God not care about that? What's what's behind that? Well, let's make it worse. I mean, Jesus will later say, if you not hate your mother and father and brothers, you cannot follow me. And then the Old Testament says, honor your father and mother. So how do we reconcile that? And for Jesus, we'll actually see him honor his family later. In the Gospel of John, Jesus looks at Mary when he's on the cross and assigns a disciple for her care. But at this point in the story, Jesus' family is actually an obstacle to his ministry. And all of that language is, is idiom to say that whatever it is that would keep you from following me and investing in the kingdom needs to be chosen against in order to follow me. So like the word hate, hate your mother and father. That English word does not capture at all what Jesus is saying. Hate sounds like I, I have malice in my heart towards them. Hate is a choice word. So he could have said, prefer me over your mother and father. Like honor your mother and father, and there are ways to do that even if you're making choices to follow the kingdom. Like when I first told my folks I was going to seminary, they thought I was throwing away my life. I mean, they absolutely did. And in some cultures, honoring your father and mother would mean that I abandon seminary and follow their authority over me, correct? Exactly. I know. May you make similar choices. So when your family is an obstacle to the revolution, then we're always honoring to them, but we're choosing the kingdom over them if, if they force us into that choice. Does that make sense? So great question. Yes. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to join this young one in making a joyful noise. We're going to have about 15 minutes where you can respond, right? The lights are down, so you know God is at work. We're going to have some music in minor keys, so you know it's real. Maybe some fog machines, if we feel the Shekinah is, you know, entering in. We're not sure. No. What we're going to do, um, because the expressions of our faith are communal, as a community, we're going to respond. What we do is we have these stations around the room, and there are a number of things at the stations. First of all, there's a prayer shawl there. And at the end of the shawl are things called talits. And this is what the woman who was fighting through the crowd was trying to grab a hold of. Because the Messiah was to have healing in the wings of his prayer shawl. And so, so some of us are holding things where we're praying for healing. And so the encouragement is you go over and stand there and grab one of those talits and you pray for healing. There are also pieces of paper where you write down prayer requests. And, and the, the amazing, honest, beautiful things and hardships that are going on in our community astound us. And we take time to pray over these. Because it's a way, it, it's actually uh, one of the most profound ways we um, minister together as a body. There's also uh, places to give if, if 
you are working against the natural greed and consumerism of American life. We don't see giving as something that's forced. We don't see giving as something that the church is going to continually hound you on. We see giving as like, I'm waging war against the hoarding nature of my heart. And then there is the Lord's Supper, most importantly. And this represents the hospitality of Jesus to you. If you've not been liberated by this Jesus, you've firmly entrenched in religiousness and churchianity, I just want to invite you to take the Lord's Supper today and ask God for liberation. Not in an American sense, but in a biblical sense. Liberation in an American sense is I get to do my own thing. Jesus is for those who are tired of doing their own thing. And they see the, the ditch that that way of life leads into. So you're all welcome at the table, taking the bread and the cup. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll spend about 15 minutes or so singing together. But that is just backdrop to whatever it is um, and however it is that you would want to respond. So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would um, affect in us the transformation of our minds and our lives so that we might live into the reality of your kingdom as it's coming and has come, and that we might see people set free in our community, that I might experience and grow into freedom, that our middle schoolers would experience and grow into freedom, that all the rubbish that is accumulated over the beauty of Jesus of Nazareth over 2,000 years would fall away and that we would get a glimpse, just a glimpse of Jesus as he really is so that we would be fools not to drop everything and follow. And Father, we recognize that your spirit has to be at work for that to happen. So we open ourselves up to you and ask God that you would dwell among us with great um, power and... Um, and that you would shape us into people who look at the world and live like Jesus did. We love you. Amen.